0: Welcome to Small Pleasures, a podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael, and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion.
1: This time, we're thrilled to welcome a very special guest, Ailsa Cox, who's going to discuss her approach to short fiction. Ailsa Cox is Professor Emeritor of Short Fiction at Etchill University UK, the world's first professor of short fiction. She inaugurated the Edgell Short Story Prize in 2006, which remains the only national literary award to recognise excellence in a published single authored short story collection. She authored Alice Munro, published by Northcote House in 2004, and Writing Short Stories, published by Routledge 2005, of which there have been several editions. She also edited Teaching the Short Story, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. Her essay, The Institution of Creative Writing, is included in the Cambridge History of the English Short Story, edited by Dominic Head, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. And her essay, Writers on the Short Story, 1950 to Present, appears in the Edinburgh Companion to the Short Story in English, edited by Paul Delaney and Adrian Hunter, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2019. Elsa Cox has published many other essays on short story writers, including Alice Munro, Catherine Mansfield, Helen Simpson, Daisy Johnson, Malcolm Lowry and John McGregor. Her own short fiction is widely published. Her collection *The Real Louise* was published by Headland Press in 2009, and her short story *How Loud the Birds* appears in *Catherine Mansfield and the Garden Party and Other Stories*, edited by Jerry Kimber and Todd Martin, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2022. She's twice been longlisted for the BBC National Short Story Prize. Nelson Cox is also editor of the journal Short Fiction in Theory and Practice and deputy chair of the European Network for Short Fiction Research, known as ENSFR.
0: So that's an impressive bio spanning all aspects of short fiction, from theory to practice, writing, editing, teaching, and we should discuss how this combination works for you at some point. But in this podcast, we wanted to discuss you as a creative writer primarily by focusing on the short story you wrote for Nicholas Royal's Nightjar Press, Cocky Watchman. Can you say how you came to write this story?
2: I'd been interested for a while in writing a classic ghost story. And in fact, an earlier story, Blackbird, which is published in Confingo magazine, began as that kind of exercise. It became something else in the process. And there isn't an actual ghost in Cocky Watchmen either. But still, ghost stories bring out some of the things I enjoy the most about writing short fiction. Ghost stories are mysterious and ambiguous. Short stories are very good at ambiguity. The other crucial aspect is the use of a framing narrative. Ghost stories like to signal to the reader that this is a tale being told and you should pay attention and question what comes next. One of my favourite ghost stories is A.S. Byatt's July Ghost, which is framed as an anecdote. In Cocky Watchman, the cab driver's story is framed by the first-person narrator and by her reworking of it through her imagination. That core of the story, the taxi driver's reminiscence, is loosely based on what I was told on a real-life cab journey on Mischief Night, which is the night before Halloween.
0: Well, Fascinating. What is the cocky watchman exactly? Cocky watchman is an old scouse term for
2: what's basically a park keeper. Recently I've heard it used as a nickname for Curtis Warren, a Liverpool drugs baron. But in my story it's an old man with a hut and a brazier, like the one I heard about from the cab driver.
0: So in some ways this is a specifically regional story. The myths of the Cocky watchman and Mischief Knight are only found in certain locations in the north of England. Do you consider this to be a northern story?
2: Very much so.
0: More specifically, it's set
2: in Liverpool and its wider hinterland, spreading into semi-rural West Lancashire and across the Mersey to Wirral, both quite liminal territories. There are faint traces of Scouse in the narration, Old fella. The Aster, you always say the Aster in Liverpool. Mm.
0: That's really interesting because we find the use of dialect and the vernacular in Scottish or Irish stories quite widely, but less so in English ones, even though the short story does have an oral tradition. Also, it seems as though this focus on a specific place allows you to slip between times. The framework of the story is contemporary, but its time frame shifts to the war, and to an older history. And the present of this story is very much haunted by the past. Can you talk about the relationship between past and present in this story?
2: Yes, time and space are so closely interwoven. You can't learn about a place without understanding its history. There's all sorts of memory here. The reminiscences of the cab driver about this invented part of Liverpool where the protagonist lives, her personal memories, and also in the imagined tale of the policeman who burnt down the cocky watchman's hut. And there is a retribution through a supernatural device, which itself is linked to the watchman's miraculous survival during the war. So it's still quite complicated, these layers of time. And by mixing up the policeman with proper speculation, I also wanted to say something about the regeneration of Liverpool, which sometimes preserves the past, but sometimes threatens to erase it. Just recently, there's been a big story in the news about a historic pub in the Midlands that not so mysteriously burnt down just after it had been acquired by new owners. There have been stories like that for years in Liverpool and in Manchester too. But on the whole, the past survives in the fabric of a city. Liverpool is a great place, Storytellers, storytellers. People love to talk. I still miss Liverpool, even though I don't regret moving to Todmorden. Maybe I'm a bit like the cab driver who's sentimental about his old neighbourhood, even though he's moved into a town on the outskirts.
1: I love how you link past and present, and your use of orality to make everything, even the past, present, right now. And I also love this link that Livy's making between space and time, a link that will be further explored in the upcoming ENSFR conference in Manchester. I can't wait. Your time shifts in Cocky Watchmen are phenomenal. I'm haunted by the strange sensation you create, this feeling of being driven along, fleeting impressions through the window, the impression of moving through time and space. Could you talk a little more about how space and time articulate for you in your writing?
2: Movement, yes. I'm an intuitive writer. I might think about some formal aspect, but I don't plan. I follow my instinct, letting the language lead the way. And I draft and I redraft. I read aloud to myself. I try to feel a rhythm in style and imagery. And though I start from the beginning, and I keep going back to the beginning in further drafts, I start from the beginning, but I don't write in a linear fashion. I try to create a kind of collage moving back and forth across time and space, and often between voices. Now, I've always written like this. I get bored if I stay in one lane. And some of this style, some of this approach to structure comes from film. Years ago, when I started writing seriously, I was very influenced by film, especially Nicholas Roeg's Don't Look Now. I was also influenced by Malcolm Lowry's novel, Under the Volcano.
1: That's fascinating to hear more about your practice. I also sense this connection between film and the short story, especially in constructing narrative and use of imagery. Back in July, I was lucky enough to hear you reading with Ruby Cowling at the Short Fiction Without Borders conference at University, and you shared a work with a daring amount of description and brilliant interplay between inner and outer space. Short fiction writers are often advised to edit back to dialogue and action, but your work shows how wonderfully a person's way of looking at the world can tell something about who they are. What can we tell about the protagonist of Cocky Watchmen from her view of the world? Thanks
2: so much. You're so nice about my work. I do feel that this insistence on cutting everything to the bone has become a bit of an obsession in creative writing. The kind of advice that you give to a beginner who'd never read a short story in their life has turned into holy writ. But description isn't just decoration. It's a way of processing reality. I also feel that by eliminating unnecessary description or digressions of any kind, You lose those random elements that creep in unconsciously, adding more layers to the story. So in Cocky Watchman, the first-person narrator is a writer. That's important to the way the original anecdote is framed and reworked in her imagination. She is a witness, solitary, an outsider, seemingly detached from what she observes, but slipping easily from recording what she sees from the cab window or in the alleyway at home, into speculation and by recording i mean that she's processing what she sees as if she is going to write about it she lives alone with her dog her anxiety about how the dog will react to fireworks the description of the dog the imagining of the dog sense impressions these are all quite important to the story animals who are non-verbal Act as avatars for fictional characters. This dog is also a connection to a bereavement the protagonist has undergone, which is suppressed in the story because it's too much for her to comprehend or
0: express. I love what you say there. It's a description as a way of processing reality because. In earlier stories that we considered, including one by Alice Munro, there is actually quite a lot of description and it doesn't feel at all excessive as it doesn't hear. And I really love the idea as well of the dog being an avatar. There's also the intriguing figure of the policeman who's in some ways a counterpoint to the cocky watchman. Would you say a little more about him? He's someone who
2: used to be a bit of a scally, but as a grown-up, he's risen to quite a senior position in the police force, and he has all the trappings of success. He got away with arson years ago when he burnt down the Crockley Watchman's hut, but somehow the watchman's own affinity with fire has transferred itself to him. It's something he thinks he can control, but of course he can't. That's what fire is like. This comes with a sense of his own separation from others, though none of this is made explicit in the story. I think that anyone who joins the police has crossed over into a different world to the rest of us and, and is some kind of an outsider.
1: I did love that feeling of several different worlds all meeting. And for the female protagonist, though she's a very distinct and vivid presence, I must confess I felt about her something of you, and I suppose there's always a risk of an author's shadow colouring the reading of their works. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on the author-work relationship, how this plays out for you. In Cocky Watchman, there's perhaps something quite playful about this protagonist, who's also a writer, and academic, and who references how she might craft the story of her journey, even as she's narrating it. Uh, what relationship, if any, do you feel with your characters? What distance do you maintain?
2: He was like me in some ways when I wrote the story. Although, so, for instance, she teaches an MA in creative writing. She's a non-driver. She lives in North Liverpool. Because she's the witness, the observer, in what was first conceived as a classic ghost story, I wanted to play around with the line between fiction and fact. You see this in M.R. James, Sheridan lefanu writers like that who tease the reader by pretending the story is something they stumbled across in real life, even though it's obviously being authored. And when you write a character in some way, no matter how rooted they are in your own experience, They also move away from who you are. Quite unexpected things do surface with that character.
0: I think that's true. But in this case, the female narrator isn't entirely sure about the taxi driver, is she? She doesn't want to give him her address. And that's part of the unsettling uncertainty that is part of the atmosphere of the whole story.
2: I'm not really sure why she's nervous around him except that it really is a lonely landscape and maybe he's a bit too eager to talk. She lives alone and and when I lived alone, I was very cautious like she is. But it's interesting to be asked a question like that, that you don't actually know the answer to because there are so many things that emerge in the writing of the story that you might not have control of.
0: Yes, and I think actually that's one sign that it's working when it kind of moves a little bit beyond your control. You sent this story to Nightjar, which is a wonderful independent press that only produces limited edition, single short story chapbooks, books, and it works beautifully on its own. But could you see it as being part of a collection? The themes in it are very rich, or do you see it as a standalone work? I
2: like it as a standalone pamphlet, a natural way to publish stories, though I wouldn't rule out including it in a collection at some point. When I write my stories, they seem very different to one another, though possibly another reader could see how each would resonate with another.
1: I love this question that Livy's uh, presented about contextualisation. It's such a huge topic for short stories, as there's scope for them to appear in vastly different contexts, uh, anthologies, collections, websites, and so on. One of the joys of ordering Cocky Watchmen from Nightjar Press was that it came brilliantly packaged, the most outlandish and delightful packaging I've ever seen in my life, with a very haunting image of a ferry as a curious accompaniment, And and your story is beautifully produced, it's very high production values. So when I think of Cocky Watchmen, I also think of all these happy associations, the creation of a moment, an experience. How far do you allow yourself as author to imagine this part of the reception of your story? Do you allow yourself to entertain ambitions for them to appear in certain contexts? Or is it more a case of put it out there and see what happens?
2: Unless it's a commission, I don't really think about the reception of the story. And they take me so long to write with constant redrafting and githering about voice, tense and so forth. They never feel finished or they're in print. And sometimes not even then. Nicholas Royal was a great editor. I often need help with endings. And if an editor has no suggestion, I wonder if they've read the story properly. And by the endings, I don't mean what happens about the ending, the actual things that go on plot-wise, but the actual winding down to the ending, where you finish it, which note you end it on, that is very difficult. Of course, I love my stories to be in the New Yorker or to win a big prize, but I was also thrilled once a few years ago to read in the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin and to be an honorary Irish woman just for one night. I love reading my work out loud. I have a recurring dream in which I discover my true vocation is to be an actress. Connecting with any reader is wonderful and an incentive to write. In the 80s, I used to write theatre reviews for City Life, the magazine in Manchester. And because they were going to be read, I got more out of them than the novels I was struggling to produce and that were still not being published. So it is all a bit random, but I do love connecting with
1: readers. Random is great. And I'm sure the readers love this connection too. This reader certainly loves the connection. Uh, just looping back to what you were saying about the ending, I reread your story this morning and savoured once again the, the very open ending. And I love how that holds the note, the barely contained danger that's been running all the way through the story.
0: I mean, in terms of your aims when writing this short story, how far would you say they correlate with your other short stories?
2: I can't really talk about conscious aims as such, but my methods do correlate that interest in voice, rhythm, random connections, shifts in time.
0: Is that what you admire in other short fiction?
2: Well, I admire some writers, such as the American science fiction writer Taylor Chang, who write in a very different tradition to me. But I do especially enjoy writing that explores memory, that is elliptical, and has an emotional resonance and can also be playful and subversive. Alice Munro, of course, Tessa Hadley, Kirsty Gunn, Claire Keegan, Sarah Hall, John McGregor, Lucy Wood. The list is getting longer.
0: (laughs) Yes, to some extent these are very relevant topics for our time And to return to my earlier question, you've become a specialist in short fiction in more ways than one. How does your work as critical theorist, teacher, editor, judge, fit in with your own writing? Does one element tend to dominate or would you say they're all essential to one another?
2: Getting to know a text really well as a short story critic feeds into my own practice. I never get tired of exploring the work of Alice Munro there's always something new that strikes you on another reading. Recently, I've become especially aware of how she handles characterization in her mid-career collections. The characters mirror each other in some ways, but also diverge. She sets up a pattern, but then she breaks it so that there are oblique correspondences that don't quite fit. I've learned from that. Not long after I retired from my university teaching job, I did some sessions for writing on the wall in Liverpool, and that reminded me of what I enjoy best about teaching, getting people to talk, making a link between speaking and writing and helping them explore what they can do with language. Having to mark the writing is less pleasurable, I'm afraid, and the increasingly consumerist approach to learning makes my kind of interactive teaching almost impossible. Another aspect of my work, I'm still involved with the long-listing and short-listing for the Edgehill Prize. It's just wonderful when you start reading something that's the real thing. You know what it is, even if you can't define that special quality we found in writers such as Jesse Greengrass, Daisy Johnson. Inevitably, there are collections that nearly get through or that have one or two brilliant stories but are uneven and sometimes that's a collection no one else likes as much as I do. What's more surprising is that there are so many collections that are competent and polished, with neatly worked out symbolism, and an obvious message, and simplistic characters who never change or do something you couldn't have predicted. So the writing is good in some ways, but it's controlled, it's over controlled, it's neat. Every year there seem to be new publishers and new writers and yet paradoxically there are fewer opportunities for short story writers who already have a track record. So the second or the third collection might be more difficult for them. I know I do too many things but I find them hard to give up. I do my best to prioritise my own writing, though sometimes it's when I'm supposed to be doing something else that I have a mental breakthrough with a story that I'm writing. I also find my involvement with the European Network for Short Fiction Research really stimulating, being in touch with so many European-based critics who are passionate about the short story. And some of those also are secret writers themselves, and some of them combine like I do criticism and practice. Our latest conference in Manchester this autumn will bring together even more writers than our previous gathering in Lisbon last year. And it's wonderful to see so much dialogue between creative writers, critics, and publishers. There's a special sense of comradeship among us, perhaps because we've always felt like an embattled minority in the literary world.
1: I was so thrilled and grateful when I discovered the NSFR to spend time sharing a passion with experts and writers from all over the world. Such a fantastic gift. And we'll flag up details for anyone looking to participate in October. Definitely.
0: And just to bring this discussion to a close, can I ask what are your current projects?
2: I'm working on a mini collection of stories as a collaboration with the artist Patricia Farrell, which I hope will be out next year from Confingo. I'm also exploring hybrid forms of writing. I'm putting together an anthology of classic stories alongside my own fiction and some autobiographically based criticism. The working title for that is now Backstory. And I'm also blending memoir with fiction in a book about the aftermath of a police shooting in the Midlands in 1925. I'm preparing the third edition of my book, Writing Short Stories. and. Reading Alice Munro's breakthrough books, A Suite in Four Voices, which is a collaboration with the Canadian scholar J.R. Tim Struthers, uh, a French scholar Corinne Bigot, and the late Catherine Sheldrick Ross, will be going to press very soon with a major. British publisher. I'm not going to name the publisher because we haven't signed the contract yet. <laughs> and
1: I, I don't want to jinx it, but
2: that is imminent.
1: I'll remain discreet about the, the major British publisher so as not to jinx the project. I'm sure it's going to go wonderfully well. We give a, a shout out for Confingo. Really exciting things upcoming and Scratchbooks, which is another brilliant small press this time dedicated to the craft of the short story run by Tom Cronahan.
0: Wonderful that is so wide-ranging like the rest of your career. One of the things I think is really remarkable is how you've dedicated your life and carved out a whole career in the short story form which was, as we know is not the most lucrative kind of area of fiction. But by developing your expertise in diverse ways, you've contributed so much to this field. Ailsa, it's been a delight to talk to you and thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. You've been listening to Ailsa Cox, Professor Emeritor of Short Fiction, Editor of Short Fiction in Theory and Practice, Critical Theorist and a wonderful short story writer. Do look up Cocky Watchman from Nightjar Press as well as her other books. And do come to the conference if you can. It's the seventh annual conference of ENSFR held at Manchester University this time between the 23rd and 25th of October. Sonia and I will also be there. nima once again, thank you for listening to this Small pleasures podcast. and Do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and Sonia.
1: À très bientôt.